back and forth, and then it turns it on. Okay, so it's about to start. Well, hello, Chris, and welcome aboard. Um, the first thing that I'd like to uh, to, to talk about is uh, the Buddha. Actually, everything that we're going to say has to do with the teachings of the Buddha. But one of the things that he uh, was quite famous for was by saying that what he discovered was an old path. That it's just simply the truth and human beings can figure it out. He figured it out also. The problem is, is that it is very, very rare for an individual to figure it out for themselves that almost always it's um, spread from one person to another, very much like fire. Fire is really, really hard to make, especially if you don't know how. And the one who does has made fire can share it easily. It is much better in the old days. It's much easier just to go next door when the fire goes out and get a few coals in a bucket and bring them home than it is to start over again. Okay? And so uh, there's only been a few people in history that appear that they were enlightened. A few of the Greeks, Socrates, for instance, perhaps Jesus. Maybe in the modern times we have an Eckhart Tolle show up. But Eckhart Tolle spent two years on a park bench on the Thames. Yes. And so he must have known what to do. He got a little bit from a book and then he practiced. Okay. So I do not recommend, and yet it seems to be the Western way that we have tens of thousands of people in Mexico and the United States and Canada basically probably more than tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who think that they can do it by themselves. Where that's almost never done in Thailand. That in fact, that's one of the things that I had thought about Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was is that he was able to figure the stuff out for himself. And it turns out later, I find out that he had a major teacher. And in fact, the teacher that he had was the Samdet Sangharaj, the top monk in all of Thailand at the time, from 1930 to 1939, or actually 39. He lived in 1950. But this is the time when Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was a student also. Mm -hmm. And that uh, another thing that I thought, well, if Bhikkhu figured it out by himself, then that means that he's unique among uh, all of the Thai people. And the answer to that is no, he just joined a club of nobles, a very large club. Yes. And, that, and that many of them had great appreciation for Bhikkhu Buddhadasa uh, because he was willing to teach it openly. For many, many centuries, the actual teaching of the Buddha had been um, kept hidden and quiet deeply buried within the Sangha so that many of the monks within the Sangha really didn't understand the teaching of the Buddha. They had to wait until they were, let us say, ready. They had to ask the right questions at the right time. Basically, you have to have the right question at the right time to the right teacher under the right circumstances, and then 
you might get the right answers. But Bhikkhu Buddhadasa turned all of that stuff upside down and he says, no, let's actually let the teachings of the Buddha out to the world and let people pick and choose for themselves. Because even then, a very few of them are going to get it. But it's better to have only, let us say, 10% of the people who see the teachings of the Buddha can understand it, as opposed to less than 1%, which is the way that it is when it's all hidden away. But there was good reasons to hide it away, because the actual teachings of the Buddha in the wrong hands is quite dangerous. When we teach you the mental skills that you need in order to take care of your own mind, you can actually misapply those and manipulate people. Okay. And so part of the process then of keeping it hidden is to make sure that it's not abused. Also, there are those who hate people who do practice the teachings of the Buddha and call them all kinds of names and try to stamp them out. And in fact, the, the number of murders, suicide, not suicide, but the number of murders over history. I mean, Socrates was murdered. Jesus was murdered, Buddha was poisoned in his uh, uh, late in his life and died from that. So there's all kinds of problems. And this is part of the reason for keeping the teaching secret is because they're dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah I understand. Yet, it's time to let it open, that those dangerous times are um, coming to an end. People are not going to nowadays be murdered because they're smarter than the politicians. But in the old days, they got murdered because they were smarter yeah. than the politicians and the politicians hated them for it. So um, now that we can open it up, we can come back to the actual teachings of the Buddha and what the Buddha says that he taught. He says it, in fact, uh, we've got now, I think, four or five different suttas to where he says this, that both formally and now, I teach only one thing. Well, if the Buddha only teaches one thing, then it seems like it ought to be fairly easy. He only teaches one thing. And what is that? Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Now, the problem with the word Dukkha in Western Buddhism is, is that they think it means suffering. And by that, they miss the point. That there is a such a thing as suffering, but most people are not suffering. Most people are living lives of quiet desperation, and if they got money, uh, they are noisy in their desperation. But desperation is not the same thing as suffering. Okay, so, but in fact, the actual word for uh, dukkha means just simply dissatisfying or unsatisfactory or not quite up to scratch. And so Duke and Naroda means to make that flip, make a change from unwholesome into wholesome. And yet, most of the way that it's practiced in the West, they have the idea, especially if they're going to go try it on their own, like making fire, perhaps using stones and water and all kinds of things to try to make fire because they don't know how to do it. Right? Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of failures out there, people trying to figure it out on their own, where it actually is quite simple when it's laid out in a simple way. 
but the, that there's something else about that. When the Buddha says he only teaches one thing, and that is dukkha and then getting out of it immediately, that means that he does not teach metta. He does not teach jhana. He does not teach uh, meditation, as it were. He does not teach rebirth or reincarnation. He does not teach precepts or rules or Ten Commandments or any of that kind of stuff. He only teaches one thing, and that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. And yet, look at all of this stuff that's been piled on to Buddhism. Magical powers and flying through the air and all kinds of weird stuff that people want. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, wanting things that you don't have is a form of dissatisfaction. So if you think that Buddhism Buddhism has uh, magical powers in it, and you want these magical powers, then you're actually suffering from Buddhism. That in fact, in the sutta that we're talking about, uh, the name of it is the simile of the snake. And it is um, sutta number 22 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Now, in the simile of the snake, the Buddha talks about how dangerous it is to catch a poisonous snake by the wrong end. If you catch it by the tail, you better be very careful holding that snake with the tail because he's going to wind away uh, to, to, uh, to coil up and bite you. If, you. if you catch him in the middle, that's even more dangerous. If you've got him by the tail, at least you can keep swinging him to keep him away from you. But if you've got him by the middle, you're, you're in real danger. And if you've got him by the neck, he'll for sure just bite you. You've got to grab him right up by the top of the throat and with your hand on top of their head. If you don't grab the snake right, it's going to bite you, right? This is what uh, uh, the uh, the snake people, they know this. They're very careful. If you've seen them milking the snake, you can see what they're doing. They've got their, their thumb and their fingers right around that top part of the jaw with the finger right on the back of his head. Keep that, you know, completely controlled, right? That's exactly how you have to take the teachings of the Buddha. If you grab the teachings of the Buddha, if you grab Buddhism by the tail or by the middle, it's going to bite you. It's like you've been bitten pretty badly several times. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm just going to say that become just a form of materialism of a different kind uh, trying to get something out of it and well there's there's one more point that i've been saving until last for this part of the point and that is is that he did not teach metta the buddha did not teach metta there is no metta meditation there is mention of people practicing metta as another group of monks that were not part of the Buddha's path. They were not bhikkhus. They were not ordained by him. They were another group of people completely that the monks dealt with. Also, it appears that some of them later came to the Buddha and continued to practice the metta in in the Anapanasati Sutta, where he recommended that instead 
maybe the word instead is a funny word, uh, to practice Anapanasati. But Anapanasati is the practice that the Buddha gave, and that he gave it in conjunction with the Eightfold Noble Path. And the Eightfold Noble Path is part of the Four Noble Truths, and the Four Noble Truths is just a kind of an unpacked version of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And in fact, you have Dukkha, its cause, and Naroda, and its cause. That's what the Four Noble Truths are all about, is what is Dukkha? Now, a lot of the people in the West, they think, oh, we've got to get a really strong, solid handle on Dukkha. We've got to look at Dukkha and see the Dukkha and then expect it to be like this Dukkha and then expect them both together and look at how much Dukkha, 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 Dukkha. Pretty soon the meditator is sitting in his own pile of Dukkha. He lives in his own city dump. This is called the Mahasi method. And a lot of Zen people do that too because they're not practicing correctly according to the teaching of the Buddha, but they are developing a few skills. One is that they were, they're remembering to look. That's the investigation part. That's part of the Eightfold Noble Path. But the point is, is that if we don't understand the Dukkha and understand it correctly, then it doesn't matter what we're practicing it's not going to stop the dukkha, that we have to stop the dukkha immediately. And as soon as we stop the dukkha, then we're in the third noble truth, the state of sukha, the state of the finish of the dukkha, and that uh, we have to carefully analyze the point about what causes the dukkha so that we can avoid it. Now, number one item of the reason that uh, the dukkha is caused, I know that Vajrayana, they say, oh, it's Tanhai, it's clinging, but that's the cause of, of dukkha. You've probably heard that many times. <clears throat> then you've also heard loba mohadosa, or that there's actually greed, ill will, and ignorance or delusion. Yeah. This is a closer understanding. But the real underpoint is, is that it is, is delusion. We think we know something when we don't. We think something is good for us when it in fact is not. We're That's deluded. Funny. If we want something that we don't have, we want it because we think it will be good for us and we're deluded because wanting it and not having it is dukkha itself. It's a wrong view. So we're delusional. Go ahead. What? I was just that. So that's a, a, a wrong view. Yeah. Oh, well, wrong view is a particular kind of thing that we'll talk about <clears throat> later, as opposed to right to noble view. Because there's a right ordinary view also. But the point is, is that it, uh, all of them are ignorant, or all of them are wrong view, in the sense of we think that it is okay to hate people, that it is okay for us to be, let us say, Democrats who hate Republicans. Republicans, or it's okay for us to be Republicans hating Democrats or Tories or uh, another government. Canadians think it's okay to hate the U.S. government. Right? Quite a lot of them. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's that's delusional right there. So I guess a, a, you're saying it's a, the ignorance that is at the bottom of it all. 
Well, let's involve, let's look at the word ignorance because the Pali word is a jiva. And a jiva does not necessarily mean not knowing. It can also mean wrong knowing or knowing not. So it encompasses not just um, ignorance, but delusion also. We can also go so far as to say that there's two kinds then, two kinds of ignorance. There is wise ignorance in the sense that we are wise to our ignorance and we know that we're ignorant, as opposed to unwise ignorance, which would be that we think that we know when we don't, which is delusional. Okay. So some kind, sometimes ignorance is delusional and sometimes it's wise. Here's an example. You get up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet, but you don't turn the lights on because you know your way to the bathroom. It's pitch dark, but you know where everything is. On the way to the bathroom, you stub your toe and it hurts a lot. Okay? And you don't like that at all that you stubbed your toe. Now, did you stump your toe out of ignorance or out of delusion? Um, out of delusion. Out of delusion. Of course it was, because if you were ignorant, you knew you were ignorant, you'd have turned the light on. You'd say, no, I don't know my way to the bathroom. Maybe somebody's used to uh, change the furniture, the puppy's done something on the floor. I'm not right sure. <laughs> okay. But if we're going to say, no, I know my way to the bathroom, and then stub our toe on the way, well, this is exactly what we do our whole life, that we, we go through our life blindly thinking that we know what we're doing, and we keep stubbing our toe over and over and over again. Mm. I see what you mean. Metaphorically, of course. So, mm. if we understand it like this, the second noble truth then actually has to do with wake up right now and see it right now, that this is not a long process. It's something that we do immediately. Mm. Okay, it's something that we have that happens right here, right now. And so we can actually flip them from the first noble truth, dukkha. This is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. And now this is what it's like to be finished with that dukkha. And then this is the practice, the way that we're going to get rid of that dukkha, which is the eightfold noble path. Now, it's got to be a noble path, and yet there are many, many paths that have these items on it that are not noble. In fact, almost everyone starts off on an eightfold path that's not at all noble, that has sila, samati, panya. You've probably heard sila, samati, panya before. Okay. Well, the actual noble path does not start with sila, samati, panya. The real noble path starts with panya, developing samati with the result of sila. We'll talk more about that at a later time, but we start with wisdom. This is the change of the way that Buddhism is normally uh, taught, like to children, is we start by giving them a set of rules or precepts or whatever like that, and then we give them meditation, and then they let them find out about, uh, it's actually called purification of behavior, purification of the mind, and then purification of the view. We start off immediately with right purification of the view. And from there we develop. Okay, so this is the major difference, and it's the way that, that it should be practiced based upon the suttas. Yeah. Sutta number 117, precisely. Okay, so 
the Buddha says that, listen, monks, and I will tell you, right unification of mind with its supports and features. Okay, there's a difference between the support and the features. That in fact, the, the, the supports are what this whole practice is all about. The supports with right view, right waking up or sati to remember to look, right effort to make a change, and then right attitude as we grow, we put those together to have a mind that's unified. It's not a crowd. That right now we have arguments with ourselves, we have doubts, we have worries, we tell lies. All of that is an indication that the mind is not unified. But when the mind is unified and noble, then we don't want anything. And if we don't want anything and the mind is noble, then we're very unlikely to go kill somebody or harm somebody to get it or to rob them or to tell lies about it or to mess around with it, whatever. You know, the precepts are there as an indication of what your behavior would be like if your mind is noble. And we take those precepts and, and wholesale give them to people as rules. You see what you mean? Yeah. All right. So when we understand Sila is, is the outcome of a mind that's noble, we can practice directly towards getting the mind to noble rather than worrying about going around following all the rules. We've been doing that our whole lives and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. This is what the Buddha calls Sila Bhatta Paramasa, attachments mm -hmm. to rites, rules, and rituals. And many people will then make Buddhism just another set of rules. Yeah, exactly. Just, just changing one for another. Mm -hmm. Or just piling on. <laughs> yeah, adding more, more complexity. Yes. Right. Any rule will do. <laughs> yeah. So, when we understand it like that, then we can take this group of four items. That is right investigation right sati to wake up, right effort, and right attitude, we could take those four things as skills to be developed and apply them to anapanasati. That anapanasati is the method of applying the Eightfold Noble Path. And then we then practice the Eightfold Noble Path for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana. Now, what is the Satipatthana? That's the four foundations of mindfulness which is basically the human body, the feeling systems, the mind, and all of the mind's objects. And when we say the mind is different from the mind's objects, we're talking about the state of mind, or the attitude of the mind, or the inclination of the mind. And then we have the thoughts that go on in the mind. So this is the Satipatthana. And we practice this Satipatthana with Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambhojana. Okay, this is all in the Anapanasati Sutra number 118 of the Majjhima Kaya. So, the, um, the practice for the seven factors of enlightenment, and we recognize uh, very quickly that the seven factors of enlightenment are actually a fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path that we started with. But we started with the Eightfold Noble Path as skills to be developed. And now we wind up having those things developed. 
so that the sati becomes unremitting sati. What do we mean by unremitting? That it's there when we need it. It's always going to be there when we need it. It may not be there all the time, but it'll come back when we need it. So we need to practice sati so that it will be there when we need it. And how we do that is with the breathing. I'll talk about that in a little while. So once we have sati, we, uh, it has to be a strong sati to actually wake up. And if we wake up, that means that we're waking up, we can really see what's going on in the mind in this particular moment. If things are good, then that's okay. That's not a problem. But if it is unwholesome thoughts, if we have thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of stealing, thoughts of breaking the precepts, thoughts of wanting things, then we have to see those thoughts and immediately make a change to them. As soon as we see them, we change them from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. Or as it said in Anapanasati Sutta, to gladden the mind. <clears throat> now, these unwholesome thoughts are also referred to as hindrances. I'm su- I suppose that you've heard of the word uh, specifically with Buddhism as hindrances. Yes. Mental hindrances, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, all of the ways of practice with Zen and Vajrayana and uh, uh, Mahasi and all of that, they actually don't give the correct instructions of to see those hindrances as hindrances and throw them out immediately and make them not hindrances. Hmm. But they are hindrances to be removed immediately. These hindrances can also be thought of as obstructions or they can be thought of as unwholesome thoughts. They obstruct us and they hinder us from being a good state and unwholesome thoughts also hinder us or obstruct us from being in a good state. And that good state that we're going for has to be practiced. I know many, many thousands of students will practice 10,000 hours or 20,000 hours of meditation in misery, doing what you've been told to do, expecting somehow magically that the uh, giant comma machine in the... uh, in the sky is going to waltz in with a, um, a shakti pot brush and strike you and say now you can be happy no yeah. happiness is a skill that has to be developed when do we develop it right now when we remember it that's when yeah. it's to be developed yeah i think that's a common belief in the in the west that you have to work hard and then at some point in the future there will be that reward or that results but were taught that in in uh, kindergarten and in first grade. Yeah, that's not a part of the teaching of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. His teaching is dukkha, dukkha naroda. Don't step in it right now. Okay. But in fact, you could say in the Western mentality is once you have stepped in a cow pie or a, a big pile of horseshit, now you have to clean your shoe. And when you get your shoe all cleaned up, then you'll be okay. Right. The teaching of the Buddha is completely different than that. He says, look at that cow pie before you step in it. and Don't step in it. Now you don't have to clean your shoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's a better way of doing it is to be able to catch this stuff through sati, to wake up and look at what we're doing and to put an end to it right then and there. Yeah, I think that's why you said that's important to uh, develop sati, right? Strengthen, strengthen the sati. 
So it's available to remember, for us. To remember to wake up and look. Yeah. Remember to wake up and look. And if we uh, wake up and look and we find everything is hunky-dory, then we can congratulate ourselves for everything's okay. And, and if we wake up and we look and we find a bunch of crap in the mind, we can throw it out and say, in fact, the, the Buddha had a particular phrase for that. Aha, I see you, Mara. Now, most people, when uh, they get into uh, psychotherapy or meditation or whatever like that, and they just start to begin to wake up to see all of the um, unwholesome thoughts they have in their mind, the first thing that they do is they don't like it and want to get rid of it. Yes. Which is an unwholesome thing to do. To yes, not like it. It's making they want it to get rid of it. Yeah. Okay, so now they're wanting something that they don't have and they're ignorant about it. And they don't like it. So now they're caught in the second noble truth immediately. So the real waking up is to wake up to not do that, to wake up and say, hey, let's come into wholesome thoughts right now. Let's not go through another pile of horseshit before we have to clean it up and then we can be okay. We can just be okay right now. Hmm. All right. So. Basically, what we're doing here is we're talking about changing our kind of thoughts, unwholesome to wholesome. Another way of talking about it is changing them from critical thought things, thoughts, into nurturing thoughts. Instead of criticizing ourselves, we begin to praise ourselves. Aha, I caught that. Begin to praise and stop blaming. Start nurturing and stop criticizing. Mm -hmm. have to remember that over and over again to make friends with our inside by nurturing ourselves everything is okay everything is fine no worries we've done some zen they say just sitting no place to go nothing to do and the spring comes the grass grows by itself have you ever heard of that haiku from Bushu you have. All right. So you can just repeat that. That's good enough. Those are all wholesome thoughts. The grass is going to grow by itself. Just sitting, no place to go, nothing to do, and the spring will come on its own. Nothing to do and no place to go. Just sitting here. Uh, I have a question about Those that. So, um, Pardon? I have a question about what you're saying there. So when, when those we try to uh, bring up those wholesome thoughts. Uh, how can we know it's it's coming from a real good place? Because it could just be another way to try to fix the mind. Questioning it is unwholesome. That's called doubt. You already know, and you know darn well you know the difference between a thought of cruelty and a thought of uh, pleasure or a thought of uh, comfort. You don't have to go around saying, I don't know what a wholesome thought is, but it is also a skill to be developed. That now there's absolutely a whole lot of thoughts that you would know without a doubt are unwholesome. And there's also a whole group of thoughts that without a doubt are absolutely wholesome. And then there's the ones that are in between. Those are the ones that are going to be the development of the skill of right in investigation so that you can discern those 
thoughts. In the beginning, they're going to assume to be wholesome. And later on, you begin to see, well, maybe not. Maybe that's unwholesome too. But in the beginning, we need to make sure at least we're, on, we're throwing out the, the thoughts that we know darn well are unwholesome. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay, and there's some guidance that we can give on that because the Buddha gave that guidance in the sense of thoughts about the past are unwholesome thoughts. Now, psychology teaches us that the reason that we can see all the past thoughts that are unwholesome is because the way that the mind is wired through the DNA is, is that we're much more likely to remember the dangers and the problems and adversities that we have in our, our life, and we don't remember the good things. The reason for that is because of uh, the, the DNA with the self-preservation mechanism. So we mm -hmm. tend to remember all the dangerous things that happen so that we can avoid them and stay alive. Yes. But we don't remember the good because it's irrelevant now. Okay, so that means now that the, that the past is fraught with danger. So it's better to stay out of it. It's also better to stay out of things that are way far away from us, even right now. I mean, there is Cincinnati, but we don't have to talk about Cincinnati. There is the Ukraine, but we don't have to talk about the Ukraine. If we start talking about the Ukraine, somebody's going to say, ain't it awful, that blah, blah, blah. And now we're in unwholesome thoughts. So it's better to stay away from other places. And so that means that if we're having thoughts about right here, right now, then they're more than likely going to be wholesome. Thoughts that are not the past, thoughts that are not the future, thoughts that are not about someplace else, but thoughts about right here, right now would be wholesome. So we can begin then to say that, all right, I'm going to stop thinking about whatever I was thinking about and start thinking about right here, right now. I see. Okay, so that's the way of, of beginning. And to change those unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts would be like gladdening the mind. Now, we also, with Anapanasati, naturally the Anapana means the breathing. And Anapanasati means mindfulness of every breath. Now, I know that you've heard someplace about nose tips and whatnot, but guess what? Nose tip is nowhere in the sutras, not once. Not ever, not in the Anapanasati Sutra for sure. So if we're going to be practicing Anapanasati, we don't need nose tips. But in fact, in the Pali, it's a cavity or a cave that they're talking about, not a nose. The word nose is different from the cavity. And yet somehow or another, by a thousand years after the time of the Buddha, by the Vasudhimaga days, it became a nose when, in fact, it was always a cave or a cavity. Now, if you think about it, there are several different places that we call a cave inside. One of them naturally would be the chest area. That's a cave. The throat's kind of a cave. The, the back of the throat and the nostrils and the, uh, the sinuses and all of that kind of stuff is mostly full of mucus, but it's a cave. And the air goes through all of those places. So I can see that, but, but the nose tip, it's not a cave. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of strange that they've gotten uh, interested in the nose and especially interested because, uh, interesting because in the sutta, it says to, we use anapanasati then 
to be mindful of the body and experience the whole body. Mindfully we breathe in, experiencing the whole body, and mindfully we breathe out, experiencing the whole body. Where does the nose tip come from? It's not there. And not only that, but the next one, step four of Anapanasati, is mindfully we breathe in, relaxing the body, and mindfully we breathe out, relaxing the body. Well, how can watching the nose tip relax the whole body? But if you're aware of the tension in the neck, then you can soften that tension. Roll your head around. You can do all kinds of things if you're really aware of what the whole body is doing. So you can kind of forget about this nose tip thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that maybe use for it later. But right now in your practice, you need to start with the whole body and do it that way. I think that makes sense to me because focusing on something like the tip of the nose will actually create tension in, in the mind and you're measuring the relaxing of the body as uh, an important part of it. So if we in fact are able to mindfully watch the breathing, mindfully watching the body, that means that on every in-breath we are mindful that this is a long in-breath. And every out-breath, we are mindful that this is a long out-breath. Mindfully breathing in long, mindfully breathing out long, is not the same as watching the nose tip, especially in the sense that um, it's when the students, they're not taught to control the breath. We're right there in the Anapanasati Sutra, in fact, I just quoted for you, to prove that we actually are going to control the breathing. We're going to mindfully or watchfully breathe in and breathe out long. Okay, and there's some good psychological reasons for that. And that is, is that um, here's the example. Let us say that you're watching a card game. Maybe someone uh, you're looking over their shoulder is playing a game or playing a computer game or whatnot like that. This is called kibitzing. And that someone walks in the room and speaks to the group. The ones who were playing the game are not going to be paying much attention, but the one who is just kibitzing, it's easy for him to get dragged away. He's not really into it. Not only that, but if, let us say it's a computer game on, uh, on the PC. Then the guy who's playing the game, he's got the intricacies of the mouse, and he knows when he's clicking. And he's really watching what's going on. But somebody that's watching over his shoulder, they don't have any control over the game at all. So they begin to judge the game. Okay. But if we are actually mindfully controlling the breathing, then we could say that we've got some skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. They're actually doing it. That this is one's right effort, in fact, to breathe intentionally to breathe in long and to breathe out long intentionally and to remember to do that, okay? So this is how it's tied in together with that right effort also is, is that we see these thoughts and we remember to take a long breath and throw those thoughts out and let's have some happy, enlightening, light thoughts instead. Like, wow, this is a good breath. Oh, I'm still glad I'm alive. I'm glad I'm still alive. That we're right here in the present moment and we begin to appreciate 
the surroundings that we're in. Now, someone has recently said that 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 things are inherently dukkha, that the world is inherently bad. This is common in Buddhism, but that's clearly not the case. If if uh, uh, the world itself was inherently dukkha, then that means that life itself would be dukkha. And yet you know that life itself is not dukkha. I'll give you a, a quick test. Would you rather die right now in this one moment or wait for five minutes and then die? <laughs> wait, wait for five minutes for sure. Why? Because, because you enjoy being alive? Yeah. Yeah, I rest my case. <laughs> In fact, being alive is the only thing that really matters. Nothing else does. And so taking these deep breaths and appreciating that we're still alive, that's what matters. Nothing else does. Enjoying being alive, enjoying actually experiencing being alive and being in the present, which means being in our senses. But most of us are either daydreaming or dead in the world. We're dead to the world because we're so busy dreaming, either nightmares or daymares or whatever. We're daydreaming. And so the whole point of Anapathmasati is to wake up out of that dream, see it as unwholesome. More than likely, that dream is some other time, some other place, rather than right here, right now. Wake up into the present moment. And get a kick out of it because it's not bad. Nice. That's the way of practicing is to come into the present moment and really enjoy it. Lighten the mind. Say, wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that old house. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that old girlfriend. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that old job or whatever it is that comes to mind. Wow, I don't have to think about any of that stuff. I'm having a ball right here. Right now, this is good enough. So this is the way that we begin to practice. And we do that over and over and over again. And these three things run and circle around each other. What is those three things? Sati, to wake up, to investigate, and to make a change. Over and over and over again. Right view, right effort, and right sati. And when we do that over and over and over again, guess what? Something begins to build with that, some momentum. And the momentum then is the fourth item called Sama Sankapa, a right attitude, a right in inclination, right intention, but it happens very fast in the mind. And, and a good way of talking about it is that right attitude is, is that if you cut a tree down, which direction is it going to fall in? going to fall in the direction that it's leaning. The attitude of the tree will determine where the tree falls. Every woodsman of any uh, renown knows that. So he cuts it, the tree to because he knows by the way that he's cutting it, which way it's going to lean and which way it's going to fall. <clears throat> so we need to also figure that out for the mind. How can we shape things with our thoughts so that our inclinations will then start feeding more wholesome thoughts. Yeah. Another way of talking about this is it's our attitude. We change our attitude from an unwholesome or a negative or a victim's attitude into the attitude that's wholesome or the attitude of success, the attitude of a winner. 
The Buddha was known as a lion, you know. He was a lion. He could handle it. He could do it. Right? So this is the attitude that we have to develop. The attitude that we can clean the mind. The attitude we can do this. And these four things, right view, right sati, right effort, then add that fourth ingredient of right attitude. And when we get that going, now we're on a roll. Now the mind is getting fit for work. Now the mind is getting unified because we got the right attitude. So long as we have the victim's attitude, then there's going to be a war inside between this set of rules that we have, these standards that we make, and the child inside not able to meet these standards. Yeah. So what we do is we throw the standards out. We throw the criticism out and start nurturing the child so that the child becomes joyful and playful inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I understand what you say, because otherwise, you know, before we know it, we're going the wrong direction and like 10 years go by, right? And it, it's, uh, oh. it's an ongoing effort, yes. All right. Well, I'm glad that you're beginning to understand. So let's finish up then this with um, the thing that we had started off talking about, which was loving kindness. Mm -hmm. In a way, what we're actually talking about now is, is not do we start with loving kindness for ourselves, but we're actually intentionally nourishing. We're intentionally gladdening the mind. We're intentionally praising rather than criticizing. We're intentionally doing this over and over and over and over and over again until we get a better attitude. Only then can we go out to the outside world and spread the joy that we already have inside. But saying, oh, may all be me, me happy and now everybody else, you've missed the point. You've mm -hmm. gone outside too soon. Wait, All wait. you put on was a necktie, and you didn't put on socks and shoes and panties and, <laughs> and pants and coat. You just put a necktie on, and you walk out thinking that you're well-dressed. No, yeah, we got to get mean, fully, yeah. fully in it. we got to get completely immersed in that joy, and then we can spread that joy to others. Yeah, I think uh, otherwise uh, we're still carrying these hindrances around with us when we go out into the world. Mm-hmm. So let's get clean of the hindrances so that we can go out the world and meet it head on with great joy. Because what are we going to find out there? We're not going to be meted by great joy. You're going to get even anger, pity parties, remorse, jealousy, competition. And we need to learn to deal with all of those things on the inside of our own mind so that we come out of them in our own mind, we can then deal with people who are still caught up in all of that stuff. Right. And we can deal with them in a successful, happy way. Yes. Okay. But in, in fact, you probably have heard the words Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Okay. Yes. We're actually right now talking about Mudita. That if you've got the joy, go spread your sympathetic joy. Don't try to go get your joy out there. You go give that place joy. You've got a ton of it because you've developed that joy. That's the real Mudita. Yeah. To be able to, uh, you've got your own sugar mine now. You can start shoveling it out. <laughs> That's great. I love the examples you give. <laughs> 
very clear. Appreciate it. Okay. All right, Chris. Well, go practice this with whatever you uh, you're practicing, and later, and we'll uh, come back and we'll talk more, more about um, scheduling and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, but we're just just to get you started, to turn you mm -hmm. around, to recognize that this one point, and that is that we have to take the right effort to change the mind immediately. And that's something that's been missing in the practice that you've had. Thank you for the advice. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll see All you right. later. See you. Thanks when are you a lot. Call? Um, when are you going to you call know, back? Whenever it's uh, you recommend, I, I mean, I'm happy to do it anytime. I would recommend once or twice a week. That sounds good to me. Perfect. Once All or right. twice a week. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. We'll see you later. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye.